If you want to turn with me, we're reading from Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 to 15. It says, For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear, sorry, tear, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Um, if you're uh, new or first time, we are in a series in Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes. And so uh, thanks to Laura for reading our, our teaching text this morning. Um, the first song that we sang had these lyrics uh, that we were asking the Lord to let our fear fall away and that our faith would rise. And, um, and that is kind of our, my prayer for us this morning because uh, this morning is like medicine, okay? So um, my daughter had a kidney infection this week and we had to give her two kinds of medicines. One she didn't mind tasting because it tasted like squashums or something like that. And the other one she didn't want to take at all because it tasted terrible. And... Um, uh, the Word of God is a little bit like that. There are times we're like, oh, this, we know it's all good for us, and there are times we're like, oh, this is great. This tastes amazing. And then there are other times we're like, that's a little harder to swallow. Um, and so this morning is probably one of the harder to swallow uh, kind of, uh, kind of uh, talks, uh, sermons that we'll have. And so I, I say that up front to ask you to, um, to hang in there, to, to, to lean in. Um, sometimes, you know, when I'm trying to give her the medicine, she wants to lean back. She doesn't want to take that. Um, and so let me just ask us to have a posture of leaning in this morning and listening um, and asking the Holy Spirit to really take his word and, and let that land in our hearts in the way that it's, it's meant to, to, to be this morning, um, if we can. So I want to start off with a question, and uh, I want to I ask you what all of these people have in common. Um, take an atheist who doesn't believe in God at all and openly mocks the idea um, that there is uh, a God. What does he have in common with the televangelist uh, who will get on um, TV 
or radio, whatever it is, and will um, supposedly talk about a God, but do so in such a way to try to um, make you feel good and give him your money. And what do those people have in common with a biologist who uh, says that in all of our study of how humanity works, how biology works, there is no reason to ever mention um, a God or any kind of divine creator that has anything to do with that process. What do they have in common with maybe a youth pastor who, uh, out of the sake of trying to be hip and relevant, uh, you know, opens his prayers just talking to God like, dude, all those people have in common. What's the similar thread that runs through all of them? Um, and this morning I would like to suggest that all of them have a lack of reverence. A lack of reverence. Um, a lack of, of uh, awe before um, God our creator. So let me just, um, what does that actually mean? What, is, what do we mean by reverence? Because, um, you know, we're a pretty laid back kind of church. Um, you know, I'm not wearing a collar. Uh, you know, there was no smells and bells or anything like that. What do we mean by reverence? Because I think when we think about reverence, sometimes we think about like high church traditionalism or a formality of, of when we gather. Um, but that's not what we mean. With the scripture, when the scripture talks about reverence, or it will use this phrase, the fear of the Lord, um, it means a sense of all before God, who has primarily revealed himself in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's a recognition of his might, of his majesty, of his supremacy and sovereignty over all things, over his immeasurable power, his uh, inescapable presence. It's having a humility before uh, his preordained purposes that we can't always understand. This is what we mean by reverence, and this is what was lacking in all the examples that we gave before. It is really our attention to God, uh, or his, his reverence, uh, when we think about our reverence before the Lord, it's, it's complex, isn't it? It's not simple and one-sided. In one sense, our reverence is our attraction to God because of his great love for us, that we've sung this morning, and at the same time, it's our terror that keeps us from God because of his infinite holiness. There's this, uh, there's this uh, event that hap- happens in the, in the early church in the New Testament um, where people die because of their um, uh, dishonesty and outright lies before the Lord, and, and uh, they die because of that. And the scripture said, when that happened, people were afraid to join them, and yet the church grew. Now, the church doesn't grow unless people join them, and yet there was a fear. There was, a, there was an understanding that this was holy ground before a holy God, and that has both an attractional and also a, uh, a, a, a pushing away kind of effect to that. My hope this morning, as we hear God's word, is that in the end, it will attract us to him. Because we're going to actually ask this kind of question. Ecclesiastes is this book that really is, is, uh, we've seen this, the writer of Ecclesiastes is trying to figure out how to live, why to live, what is the meaning, what is the purpose. He keeps using this word hevel in the Hebrew, which is translated into vanity or meaninglessness. Uh, uh, You know, it's just fleeting. Life is enigmatic. We can't make any kind of sense of it. How do we live? And he uses this phrase, of which we will see again, under the sun, right? This idea that life under the sun is meaningless. It's, it's, 
It's a chasing after wind. And so this, this phrase he uses, under the sun, is a, a view of life that is limited by her, our humanity, disconnected from God, who transcends the sun, who is above the sun, who's beyond the sun. Um, and a life then above or beyond the sun that is actually acknowledging who God is and his ways and his works. So when we think about this idea of fear of the Lord, Ecclesiastes is in this part of scripture, these books of wisdom, these books of wisdom in Proverbs says the fear of the Lord, the reverence of the Lord, how we described that before, standing before him and all of who he is, is the beginning of wisdom. It's, it's the starting point of how we understand wisdom, of how we live wisely. This book that we're in at the minute, Ecclesiastes, will actually end, spoiler alert, by saying that we, uh, the whole duty of man is to fear God, that is to stand in reverence in a, a, of who God is and who we are, and to keep his commandments. That's how we live our life, wise lives. That's a life that will actually lead us into human flourishing. It's our best life that God has for us. And so like my kids, I give them medicine, even though it's bitter at times, because it will actually lead them into health and life. And without that medicine, kidneys infections take root and people end up dying or become um, severely diseased within this. And so wisdom, this idea of wisdom, is us living our lives consciously in the fear or the reverence of the Lord. And so our question then for us this morning is, do you? Do you? Do you consciously live your life in the fear and reverence of the Lord. And I, my, my guess is that most people um, don't live this way. Most, most of the population of the world um, doesn't live this way. I would maybe even dare to say that most Christians don't live this way. Right? We, this idea of who God is and standing before him and acknowledging who he is and obeying his commands has really been um, supplanted with something else. We kind of neuter who God is. Uh, we create a God in kind of our image, a God that is manageable, a God that we, can, that we can relate to because really it's the God that likes everything that we like. He hates the people we hate. He only asks us to do the things that we want to do. Um, there's a term for this. It's called therapeutic moralistic deism. All right, so I'll unpack those words for us. It's therapeutic. It, it, it's that God is really there for me. God is there as kind of a therapy for me. He's there to kind of make my life happy. It's there to make my life good. And if I'll follow, you know, this kind of God, um, the God of my mind, it'll lead me into kind of a a happy life. It's moralistic. And so uh, there are rules, and so you have to live a good life um, to follow this God. It's therapeutic. It's moralistic. There's rules that we live by. It's being a good person. In Northern Ireland, we call this good living, right? Um, So you, you do this good living kind of life. Um, that makes God happy. He makes us happy. But it's deistic in the sense that it's a God who kind of created stuff, but he's not really personally involved in the details of things. I mean, we might pray to him that Liverpool would win, but then he doesn't answer your prayers. Sorry. Right? How, how involved is God? Eh, probably not really involved. He's not, he's not involved in the details. It's just this therapeutic, moralistic kind of deism. And this is the God that most of us if uh, this is our, our probably default God, our default posture before God um, uh, as religious kind of people, right? This is, this is the, the default that I can revert to as well. When I'm not consciously living in the fear of the Lord. My default, my unconscious way of living is kind of moralistic therapeutic deism. 
Now, when I'm conscious of that, I'm terrified by that. I'm like, no, that's, that's terrible. I want to press into the presence of Jesus again. But listen to the scripture. Did, did, what did Paul mean when he says that we're to work out our salvation, not work for, but that we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling? Or that we're to worship the Lord acceptably in reverence and in awe. Why? Because he's a consuming fire. What did Jesus, was Jesus just kind of being hyperbolic when he said, don't fear those who can kill your body but not your soul, but be afraid of the one who can destroy both of those in hell. We love Jesus until he starts talking crazy stuff like that. But do we live our life consciously in the fear of the Lord? Artaxerdia, um, he, he defines uh, this life this way. He says that we would... Uh, living this, this way is to regard uh, Jesus, regard God, him so preeminently that you trust him implicitly and thus obey him unreservedly. That's worth writing down, so I'll say it again. Um, to, to revere God is to regard him so preeminently that you trust him implicitly and thus obey him unreservedly. Now, there's a lot of words in there, trusting and obeying and preeminence, and that we're going to just obey God unreservedly. Our human nature kind of bristles at that, doesn't that? Obeying anybody unreservedly, you're like, I'll obey some people, but like with some reservation. And so if, you're, if your honest answer to this question is, do I live a life consciously in the fear of the Lord? Um, if your answer is mine, the answer is not always. Not always. I can probably trick myself into believing that because our hearts are deceptive even to ourselves. But all I have to do is look at the choices that I make in my life. And the evidence is there that I don't always live in the conscious fear of the Lord. And so the question that I want us to help answer this morning is, for, for us that are followers of Jesus, well, how can I do that better? How can I deepen a life in the fear of the Lord? And this is really what this passage is about. Um, this, this passage is going to answer that question because it, it, it's answered. He tells us the reason for uh, the, the passages before verse 14 is for that very reason. And so this looks like a passage about time. Really, it's really poetic. Um, if you're old enough to, I, I was born in like kind of early, late uh, uh, early mid 70s, and so I, I was born like right at the tail end of kind of the hippie era. Uh, but there were some hippies that wrote a, a song. Basically, they took this song, added six words, and ruined it. So, in my opinion, sorry. Um, right, but you've heard this song. For every reason, turn, turn, turn. Right? No? That's all right. Good. All millennials, you've never heard the song. Don't bother. It's, it's, not, it's not great. Right? But this isn't just a passage about time. We're going to see here that, that uh, this passage doesn't just, just tell us something about time and how the world is, uh, you know, how we approach time from a human perspective. So it's broken into two parts. Verses 1 through 8 is this poem. Um, it's written as, as a poem, and it's a poem of kind of polarity. We see these polarizing kind of couplets all throughout this uh, poem. And then the second part um, is kind of this prose of reality. And it's going to be the second part that's going to help us make sense of the first part. Um, so let's look at the first part in this kind of poem um, of these polars, polarities that we see here. Um, in verse 1, for everything there is a season. 
and a time for every matter under heaven. Okay, so this is this under the sun, under heaven again. For everything there's a season and a time for every single matter. Um, these words this, in the Hebrew, this season and time are, are put together for a reason. It draws our attention. Um, what this is really drawing our attention to is not how time just kind of ticks along or the repetitive nature of that, but it's drawing our attention to God's providence over time. The Hebrew word for time here isn't, uh, isn't, isn't the same way that we understand that. In, in, in Hebrew, it, it's not just time, it's appointed time. This is why he puts the word season with that, right? Seasons aren't random, um, although they may feel like it sometimes here. But, but, but you have summer, you have autumn, you have winter that lasts forever. You have what is supposed to be spring, and then summer finally comes. But, but those seasons are appointed, right? They're appointed times. This isn't just a, a passage about how we have to kind of get times right, how we have to kind of live in accordance to, to these things. It's not just about that. This is about what happens um, uh, according to God's watch, according to God's timing. This is a declaration of sovereign, sovereign providence, that nothing happens outside of God's purposes and his plans. For everything, there's a, a season. Every matter, there's a time. This isn't chance. This isn't randomness. Why? Because God is, uh, our world is governed by something above the sun, namely God who stands outside of space and time. God doesn't experience time the way that you, you and I do. We are bound. We are slaves to time. It just continues to march forward in a linear way. And so we have this declaration of God's sovereign providence. And he uses, we've talked about this last week, this um, literary device called mirrorism, which are these polarities to describe uh, these two polar opposites that describe everything in between, right? And so we see the scripture doing this even from the very beginning. In the beginning, God created what? The heavens and the earth and everything in between. He describes humanity, those uh, that are the least and the greatest, right? That's all the breadth of, of humanity. Jesus is the alpha and the omega. He's the beginning and the end and everything in between. Jesus is described as the first and the last, so there's these merisms. It, it's, it's, it's not just two things that are opposite. It's meant to show us two things at two ends of the spectrum and the completeness of everything in between. Um, now, you can get really weird with like, is there certain codes in the Bible and trying to decipher stuff? Don't get weird with the Bible. But there are some ways that the Bible is structured at certain times um, that help us learn some things. So particularly around poetry, which is what we're reading now, and apocalyptic language, um, often the number seven and its multiples um, are really to help us to show completion, right? The completion, the seven days of creation, and then God rested. It was complete. So here we have 14 pairs of opposites, and 28 times the word time is used. The, the structure of the poem itself tells us something. There's a fullness. There's a complete comprehensive um, thrust to the poem that's here. And even the poem, the way it sounds, there's this cadence that sounds like a clock if you just read it out loud, right? There's a time for this, there's a time for that, there's a time for this, there's a time for that, there's a time for this, there's a tick-tock, there's a tick-tock, there's a tick-tock. It just is going to keep coming at us. 
And so let's look at what, 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 he's, what the breadth of what he's looking at in verse 2. There is a time to be born and there is a time to die. But this isn't just random time. There is an appointed time to be born. There is an appointed time to die. Anybody choose when you were born? Right? It's not like our souls are just on you know, this uh, you know, cloud somewhere and we're like, hey, is it my time yet? I think it's you know, July 2nd, 1974. It's time for me to get on down there. No, we didn't have any choice over when, when you were born. And yet, the scripture tells us uh, that God knew even before you were born. He knew you while we were still in, the, in, in your mother's womb. Like, you're, you're not here by accident. Acts uh, 20 tells us that you, where you live is appointed and ordained by God. There's a time to plant. And there's a time to pluck up what is planted. Um, I'm not a gardener. Uh, I enjoy walking around them, um, and, and that's about it. But I, I don't do the gardening kind of thing, right? But we know these things. You don't have to be a gardener or a farmer to know that if you plant annuals, uh, you can plant annual flowers in the winter if you want to, sure. But that's not going to go very well. Why? Because the appointed time to plant those things is right before spring. And then in the autumn, they get plucked up again. There's times that are appointed. And this is representative of all of the human experience. Look at the lists. If you notice what he's referring to, we start to see that there's actually, he starts to bounce between, he's oscillating between the human experience, all these times of delight and exhilaration, the things that we welcome in our life, and times of distress, the things that we don't want to exist in our life. Look at all the things that he delights in. There's a time to be born. There's a time to plant. There's a time to heal. There's a time to build. There's a time to laugh and dance. There's a time to gather stones together. There's a time to embrace and seek and to keep and to sow and mend. There's a time to speak. There's a time for love and there's a time for peace. And we're like, yes, the life we all want. And yet, the opposites of those are also the human experience, are they not? There's a time to die. There's a time to pluck up what was planted. There's a time to kill, to break down what was built, to weep and to mourn, to cast away, to refrain from embracing. There's a time to lose or to give up searching. There's a time to throw away, a time that tears. There's a time for silence and hate and war. This is a description, is it not, of life in the fallen world. This is the description of life under the sun. Why can't we just have the one list? Why is, it, why is it love and hate? Why is it peace and war? This is the human experience that he's describing. This is what is maddening to him. He's trying to understand. He's trying to make sense. And he can't. Which is why his refrain is that life is like smoke. It's, it's, it's there, you can see it, but you can't grasp it. It can't be controlled. And life can change in a moment, can it? None of us are guaranteed even the rest of this day. My wife works at Campbell College, full of young, healthy, vibrant men. And yet one of them dropped down with a cardiac arrest this week. 14-year-olds don't have cardiac arrests. That's for guys my age who like eat too much red meat. 
Not 14-year-old rugby lads. And yet, there it is. He survived. My, my wife's been on the phone with his mom, and right? You're told that you're infertile, that you're not going to have kids, and the next year you're pregnant with twins. <laughs> you think you've been called into the office to get fired, and your boss tells you you're getting a promotion. You meet your spouse for what you think is a romantic dinner just for them to break the news that they want a divorce. This is life, isn't it? We're not, we don't know what, what's coming. It's this roller coaster of these plunges and loops and turns. And he's trying to make sense of this. And, and the thing is, none of us are exempt. Remember who this is. It's, this, this experience is, is representative of Solomon, the most powerful, richest, wisest person. If anybody could control his world, it was him. And we saw in the previous chapters him trying to do that, right? If anybody could create and craft a life that would make sense, that would give him ultimate meaning and satisfaction and happiness, it was him. And yet he can't. He's like, all of this is vanity. We might not like the fact that, that this is life. We, we might not like the fact that none of us are exempt or think that this isn't fair. But what we can't deny is that it's true. Is this not the human experience? Who has been exempt from this? This is our reality. And before we think that, that this is, uh, again, this deistic God who winds up the, 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 the clock and then just lets it kind of spin away, Jesus knows this reality, does he not? Palm Sunday, Hosanna, King of Kings, let's do this, let's crown him Jesus, and by Good Friday, they're ready to kill him, and do. Was that random? Was that by chance? Was that out of the purview of God's uh, providence and his purposes? No. And this is the hard pill, isn't it, to swallow. He says, what happens, uh, what happens in the world there is an appointed time that God is in control of everything, every matter under the sun. Now we like to we love we love to God we love that God's involved in the good times in our life, right? We pray for those things. So Real fans, there is a God in heaven. He answers prayers. Someone makes it through surgery. Praise God. God's hand was in that. But what happens when they don't make it through surgery? Is God's hand in that? You live in, in the 90s or the late 80s, and you're like, man, God is just blessing, right? Finances, everybody's happy, everybody's doing well, everybody's selling houses, taking on mortgages. Life is grand. Celtic Tiger in the South. Good Friday agreements getting signed. 20 years later. Those things seem to hang on by a thread, don't they? Economy goes bust. Brexit, who knows what's happening with that. Social change happening at light speed. Is God still at the wheel? Look at this, look at this, this uh, 
Look at this uh, story in First Kings. I've been reading First Kings as we've been reading this because you get into the life of Solomon and some of the kings that came after him and things like that. Um, I was struck by this. There's this, uh, there's this, prof, there's this uh, king called Ahab, and uh, he's, he, he, he wants to go to war, and he calls his prophets in. And his prophets, uh, you know, he's like, hey, should we go to war? And they're like, yeah, we should go to war. Um, you're, you know, you'll win. It'll be great. Um, and, then, and then there was this other king um, that had kind of come together with him, uh, Jehoshaphat. And um, so these two kings are like, you know, should we go out and war together? And uh, Jehoshaphat goes, have you asked all the prophets? And Ahab's like, well, there's this one other prophet. But, man, he always says bad stuff about me. Like, he never will, like, say good things. And uh, he's like, well, let's hear him out and, and see what he has to say. And uh, sure enough, Jehoshaphat comes in, or the, the, um, this is Micaiah, the, the prophet, comes in. And uh, he's like, yeah, no, nah, you shouldn't go to war. That's a bad deal. Like, uh, you're going to get killed if you, go to, if you go to battle. And the king's like, see, I told you he never says anything good. And he says, send him away, throw him in prison, don't give him anything but bread and water to eat until I get back. And the prophet says, if you come back, the Lord hasn't spoken to me. I'm not expecting you to come back, right? So they go out to battle. And, and so now he's like, okay, this guy thinks I'm gonna die in battle. I'm gonna take control of the situation, right? I'm not gonna go out in my kingly robes like, hey, here's the big target that you should hit. I'm gonna dress up like a normal foot soldier. Uh, a different guy will, will dress up in the kingly robes. Uh, so sucks to be that guy. But uh, like he's gonna go out and be the target and I'll just blend in with everybody else. And so they're chasing after what they think is the king. Then they realize it's not him. And so they turn around and they go back. And then this is, this is listen to verse 34. But a certain man, a certain man, drew his bow at random. Random, right? The, the original Hebrew is in his innocence. It means this wasn't, this wasn't a sniper who was like, that's the guy I'm trying to hit. I'm going to zero in. And this is like an archer who's like, mm-hmm. You know, they all just fire them up in the sky, and they all come raining down and, and whatever, right? So this is a, cert, a certain man who draws his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. This guy's armored up, and there's the one chink in the armor, and that's exactly where this random arrow from this certain man hits. Therefore, he said to the driver of the chariot, turn around and carry me out of the battle, for I'm wounded. And the battle continued that day, and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians until, until at evening, what happened? He died. And the blood of the wound flowed into the bottom of the chariot. And about sunset, a cry went out through the army, every man to his city and every man to his country. So they're retreating. So the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king at Samaria. And they washed the chariot by the pool of Samario, and the dogs licked up his blood, and the prostitutes washed themselves in it. Game of Thrones has got nothing on the Old Testament. <laughs> According to the word of the Lord that he had spoken. Why did this certain man with a random arrow and a random bow hit the one chink in the disguised, can't find me in the crowd king? Why did all of that happen? Because the Lord said it would happen. Just as the word of the Lord said. How many times do we see all throughout scriptures, just as, as according to the scripture? Accor- do you remember we read the book of Acts? According to the scripture, according to the scripture, according to the scripture. Nothing is happening outside of the purview of the Lord. 
Every moment of, of our life is under the superintendence of God. Now, don't misunderstand that. Does that mean that everything that happens in your life is, is, is the will of the Lord in the sense of that's his desire for you? No. But is it, is it the will of the Lord in that it happens in your life under his superintendence's uh, under his superintendence for his plans and his purposes for your life? Yes. And if it's confusing how those two things can both be true and there's tension in that, welcome to the club. <laughs> it, there is a mystery in that. There is a mystery in, in Joseph who's sold into slavery by his brothers. His, his family thinks he's dead. He's sold off into Egypt there he's uh, running, he, he's as a slave in this guy Potiphar's house. He does a pretty good job. He eventually works his way up, is made the manager over all of Potiphar's uh, uh, material goods. Potiphar's wife tries to sleep with him. He's like, no way, runs away. She accuses him of raping her. He gets thrown in prison. The Lord is there and gives him the gift of prophecy uh, and interpreting dreams He's able to do that. Eventually, he stands before the king and through the gift that God has given him, saves an entire region from starvation because he knows that a famine is coming. And they're able to plan for the famine and for seven years store up goods. And then Joseph stands before his brothers who have come to him not knowing it's him to get grain and food and he reveals himself to him. And, and what does he say? What you meant for evil... Okay, so that's their choice. God, God, wasn't, God wasn't putting evil in their heart. The scripture tells us no one can be tempted by God, that sin isn't from God. Look at the book of Job. Why did calamity come to Job? Was it God or was it Satan that sent the calamity? The answer to that is yes. It, was, it, was, it wasn't originated by God, but it wouldn't have happened unless God allowed it to happen. Satan is the author of, of, of this sin, of this calamity, and yet it happens only because God is allowing it to happen. And in that, God is weaving all of those things together for our good. You meant it for evil. You're still responsible for the choices that you've made, and yet God, God used it for good. God meant it for good. Even, even God working through the evil purposes of man to save an entire group of people. Does that story sound familiar? This is the gospel story. Let's continue into the second half of this then that we'll explain. He's observed this life, this poem that there is a, a, a season, there is a time, there is an, a, an appointed time for the full spectrum of life, that God's providence is over all of those things. And then he asks the question that he's asked over and over again, this plaguing kind of question that he asks. What gain is there in this? What, what does this profit us in the end? Why? Is there any profit in trying to figure this out, is what he's asking. And the implication to his question is no. 
No, there isn't any profit in this. Why? Why isn't there profit in it? And the answer is because you can't figure it out. It's not a solvable problem. How do we come to terms with that then? How do, how do we live our life knowing that God is superintending, that God's providence is that there is nothing, there's not even a sparrow that falls out of the, out of the sky without his awareness of that? How do we live our life with that tension, though, knowing that our life doesn't always, it's not just the first list. It's not just being born and dancing and, and joy and gathering, that it also includes death and war. How do we do that? How do we make sense of that? Verse 10. I've seen the business, uh, other, other translations will say, I've seen the burden that God has placed on or given to the children of man to be busy with. God has given this burden or this business to us. What is, what is that that he's given to us then? What is it? He explains in verse 11. He has made everything, everything beautiful in its time. Now, when he uses the word beautiful here, uh, it's not just visual beauty. These flowers are beautiful. I can see that they're beautiful, right? But we use beautiful in a fuller sense, and this is what he's doing uh, in this Hebrew word as well. It's not, it's not just physical kind of beauty. It means it's appropriate. It's proper. It's fitting. That everything God has made everything appropriate and fitting in its time. Who has done that, though? It's God who has done that. And so it is God from his perspective. It is his perspective above and beyond the sun that all things, even the bad things, are all made appropriate. They're all bent toward him accomplishing his plans and his purposes. This poem and what he's referencing here is not just referencing how God made the world, but how he has ruled it of every minute and second since. God is the Lord of time. He stands outside of time. He doesn't experience time the way that we do. God is present now in the future. That's imp- you say, well, I don't understand that. You're not, we're not supposed to understand that. <laughs> we're just supposed to understand that God understands that, that that is, that is true, that he, he regulates our time. He's numbered the days of our life. He has placed the boundaries on humanity that we cannot go beyond. And nothing happens in your life without his providence and his superintendence. And then secondly, that's the first thing he says. He's made everything beautiful this time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. So you and I are bound by time, but we're not hardwired. We're hardwired for eternity. And this creates this, this tension, this dissonance, right? We feel the, bound, the binding of time. We can't escape that. And yet we are created, we are hardwired internally for eternity. This is what makes you different than your dog. Um, if, if, if a dog has all of its physical needs met, right, you feed it, you pet it, you throw the ball, it gets to lay by that roaring fire and rest, that dog is happy, right? But that's Solomon's life. 
Solomon has all the resources, all the wisdom to provide for all of his physical needs, and yet he's still restless. There's still something that bothers him. Last week, we, we had a list of people who we would all want to trade our lives with, probably, you know, like materially at least. Wealth, fame, influence, artists, creatives, intelligent um, uh, people of the world who all couldn't make sense of it and cashed it all in and ended their own lives. Dogs don't wonder about the purpose of the world and why am I here. You keep feeding them, pet them, throw the ball, they're good to go. That's not true with humans. We still get restless. There must be something more. And that's because God has put eternity in our hearts. And he's done it for a reason. He's done it that we would ask those questions. And in asking those questions, find them in him. All the questions don't get resolved under the sun but we find the one who does know them. C.S. Lewis said it this way, if we find it within ourselves a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, is that not Solomon? The most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. If everything under the sun can't satisfy you, then you were probably made for something more than under the sun. We are eternity-seeking beings. This is also for us as Christians important because we can lose sight of these things. We can become um, temporal, carnal, um, self-seeking, just kind of, we can forget that eternity is out there. We can just kind of live our life under the sun. And this is what C.S. Lewis said about that. He said, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were precisely those who, who thought most of the next. How were they most effective in the present? By realizing the present wasn't everything, it is since Christians have largely ceased to think of, of, of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. We ignore this eternity in our hearts. But we were made for God in eternity. It's why we want to know. It's why we want to figure out the appointments of our time. It's why death bothers us. It's why you want to figure out why your past has gone the way that it has. It's why we want to know what to expect in the future. Why we want to know our meaning and our purpose and our destiny and our role within all of those things. Your dog doesn't think about that. And to recognize this and not just live for ourselves and not just live for today without today without any recognition of eternity, to to live that way is to fear God. It's, It's how we live that life now that actually communicates that we believe that there is more than this life now. It's how we live in reverence and fear under the sun that is our testimony and witness to ourselves and others that there is more than life under the sun. And the third thing he says, the third way that we understand and deal with this, he says, uh, God has put eternity in the heart of man so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. 
So there's eternity in our hearts. We know that the eternity's there, and yet we're limited because we can't know what God has done. We, um, this idea of under the sun is, we, um, if you've been like to you know, art galleries and things like that, they have you know, these big master tapestries, right? But if you look at a tapestry from behind it, or if we were to have a tapestry above us here, you look at it and it doesn't make any sense at all. It's just random strings that are hanging down. There's no, there's no pattern, there's no rhyme or reason, the colors don't make sense. It just looks confusing. It just looks, you know, it's just a bunch of tattered kind of like strings and threads hanging around. God brings us above and and lets us see the actual perspective from him. And all of what seems random, all of what doesn't seem to make any kind of sense is all woven together into this beautiful picture. And this this is the difference for us. How do you live a life of reverence? When life doesn't seem to make any sense, when none of these strings seem connected, is by knowing that there is a picture on the other side of this that someone else can see. There is someone weaving all of this together that actually makes sense. I just can't see it from my perspective now. But I know and trust the one who does. And he gives us those glimpses, right? We're not completely in the dark. We're able to look at, we were able to look at the past experiences of other people, like Job, and go, man, if I were Job, I'd, I'd be angry and for 42 chapters ranting against God too. We look at Solomon and go, I understand this experience because it's my experience. It's like a, a very extremely nearsighted person who can only see the, the artwork up close the more, they, they, more they, they go back to try to get a bigger picture, the more their vision fails them. They can only see up here, and they can see this clearly, but, but it doesn't make any sense. It's just colors and shapes. And the more they try to come back, the more they try to see the big picture, the more blurry it gets. And that's us. We're myopic. We're, we're, we're short-sighted because of our humanity. We're limited. You don't have the capacity to understand all of history and how, it puts, how, how, how it's woven together, right? Like, I don't have that capacity. I don't have the capacity to understand my own life. One person for nearly 44 years, and I can't even sort that out. I can't even figure all that out. I come up against my limitations. If you were to come to me um, and ask, as some people do, hey, this is this problem in my life. This is this issue in my life. This is this tragedy that's in my life. Why is this happening? I can show you love. I can show you empathy. I can show you compassion. I can probably give you some possibilities. But at the end of the day, if the scripture isn't clear on why that's happening, I don't know. I don't know. We do our best in the wisdom that God has given us. We look at the possibilities. We lean into those. We try to make as much sense. We ask the Holy Spirit to give us wisdom and discernment in that. And so it has to be enough at the end of the day that God does know. Is that enough? Is that sufficient for you? We say, well, listen, I don't like that. That kind of makes me angry. That doesn't seem fair. 
And I would just say, be careful. Because that's exactly how Adam and Eve felt when Satan told them that there were things that God knew that they didn't. And if you just go against what God says here, if you'll just take this fruit, you'll just be like God. You'll get to know everything that God knew. And what they thought would lead them into enlightenment, what they thought would lead them into life, what they thought would lead them into being just like God did the, act, did the opposite of that. It plunged them into darkness. It plunged them into death. So our dissatisfaction in not knowing, if we're not careful, can denigrate into something sinful, something rebellious against God. We have to be like Job. Come with all of those hard answers. Bring them to God. Rage openly before your Lord. But be ready when he speaks. Because he asks Job questions that put Job back in his place, as it were. Job quickly found out that his, his mind, his perspective, his knowledge was severely limited. Paul does the same thing in Romans 9 through 11. These mysteries of, of God that are revealed to us. Why does God do this? How does God in his sovereignty do this? And, and Paul's answer to that is, does the, does the clay say to the potter, I don't like how you've made me? So this is the bad medicine. This is the bitter medicine this morning that we have to admit, I'm just the clay I'm not a potter. I'm not the one shaping and molding and directing all of these things. It just feels lumpy. It feels like I'm being stretched and pressed and pulled. But this desire to be God, this original sin, always gets us into trouble. So this is the reality, right? We can submit to it wisely or you can fight against it foolishly, but it is the reality of the human experience. And so the question is, we, as we finish, how then do we navigate life? How do we understand this complexity? And he tells us in verse 12, it's really to keep ourselves occupied in the present. Now there's a way to live that's so short-sighted and nearsighted, I'm just living for today in a way that doesn't recognize an eternity. And there's a way to be fully present in the, in the present, understanding eternity that actually fills your present with meaning. This is what he says. He says, I perceived, I, I know. So all along he's like, I don't know this, I don't know this, I don't know this, and now he's gonna get to, but what I do know, what I have perceived, is that there's nothing better for them, that is humans, than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all this toil, all this work. That is God's gift to man. Now, from an Adam and Eve perspective, you're like, that's it? That kind of sucks. You get to be God, and all I get to do is live my life and try to, try to be joyful and please you, and that's your gift to me? The answer to that is, yeah, that is his gift to us. <laughs> What's the alternative to that? <coughs> the alternative is you get to be God, which you can't be because then God stops being God and then none of us are God, or you rebel against God. And we go down the same path that Satan and, and, and the fallen angels that he took with him are. And this is these two ways that we have to live, right? 
And he tells them what this, this being occupied with today means. It's to eat. It's to, it's to drink. It's to take pleasure in our work. These things are a gift for God. This isn't the same as, well, let's just eat, drink, be merry for tomorrow we die. This isn't this kind of fatalistic, like, let's just suck it all up for today. Who knows what tomorrow brings? This is a gift of living fully present before our creator in the fear of the Lord. We, we shouldn't waste time trying to figure out what only God can know. Now, that's not an anti-intellectualism, anti-education. We should press into all the things that we can know. But we just can't do that with the arrogance that if we just press in hard enough, we'll eventually know everything there is to be known. If you can know it, then you can know it. But there are things that we can't know. The only way to live knowing that you can't know all of God's providential purposes is the way that we do that in the fear of the Lord. Now watch now what he does, because he knows something else in verse 14. I perceived, or I know, that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people will fear him. This is, the, this is why we started off the question that we started off with. Whatever God, whatever God does is, is, is perfect. It's, 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 it's forever. It's permanent. Nothing can change. Nothing can change what God does. You can't change by what you do. You can't um, preempt God's plans. He says nothing can be added to it. God's ways are complete. They can't be supplemented by what we can do. It says nothing can be taken from it. They're secure. Nothing can be compromised in his, in his will by what we do. Everything that God wants to do will be done. And my hope is what I started off this morning was that that feels like a security blanket and not a straitjacket to you. I hope that feels like a security blanket to you. If your time, if your times aren't in God's hands, then the question is, whose hands are they in? Yours? Like, if my life's in my hands, with all of my brokenness, with all of my profound limitations, with all of my sinful distortions, I'm the one that's going to sort this thing out. I'm the one that's going to, like, I'm going to have to put confidence in my own hands. Whatever's right in my own eyes. That's what Solomon had and said he couldn't figure it out. Supernatural wisdom from the Lord wasn't enough. And if it is you, let me just ask, how's that working out? Like, is our world a better place because we're all in charge of our own selves? This idea of, like, uh, complete autonomy is, is, a, is, a, is a farce. You're not autonomous. We all just don't get to live our lives however we want to and act like that doesn't impact anybody else. <laughs> That's not true. How's that working out for us? And what happens even if that's true? I'm, I get to be in charge of my own time and whatever happens in my life. But what happens when your desires for your life come in complete opposition to the desires of me in my life? Well, well now what do we do? Well, now there's a time for war. Now there's a time to kill. Now there's a time to tear. This is what happens. This is why we have racism. This is why we have sectarianism. This is why we have war. 
If it's not you, will it be your family? You want your family in control? Everyone's like, uh, no. Your friends? How about the government? Like, who, who is going to be in charge? Who will we entrust the human experiment to? This God that holds your destiny is good, he's wise, he's merciful, he's just, and he's loving. It doesn't mean we always understand. It doesn't mean we always agree. It doesn't mean that um, it always aligns with our desires. But it does mean that it will all be made beautiful in its time, including your experience of disappointment, of disease, of death, of divorce, of debt. All of those things will be made beautiful, appropriate, fitting. Is this a God you can trust? Is this a God that you can trust with that kind of um, sovereignty? Mark 1 tells us this. Jesus came. Jesus incarnates into flesh as a human being and experiences time for the first time. It's a lot of times. And he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. There's an appointed time that Jesus would be sent in. That wasn't plan B. That was always the plan from before the foundation of the earth, we're told. Jesus would say, my hour has not yet come for his, his, his crucifixion, his crucifixion. My time has not yet come, but your time is always here in John 7, 6. We're told that he's crucified at the third hour. The darkness fell on the sixth hour. He, he says, my God, my God, and, and gave up his spirit on the ninth hour. These aren't, these aren't um, accidental timings. These are precisely has God, how God timed everything. So much so that Paul would say in Romans 5, for while we were still weak, for while we were still sinners, for while we were still rejecting God, at just the right time, at just the right time, at just the right appointed time, Christ died for us. This is a God you can trust because he has experienced the full gamut of the human experience. Hebrews will tell us that um, there is nothing of the human experience of, of which he cannot sympathize with. He rose from the dead at the right time. It says, on the third day, according to the scripture. Like, all of the time that we are told of what happened to Jesus was all told in the Old Testament. It was all according to the scripture, just like your man with the arrow, thinking he can hide. And then in verse 15, that which is has already been done. That which is to be has already been, and God seeks what has been driven away. There's nothing new under the sun. This is all ordered by God. Be sure there will be a day where all of the, all of the mystery underneath the tapestry, all the things, all the injustices that have been done to you, all the wrongs, all of the pain, all of those things will be Reconciled, those, those things will be reckoned with. And it's easy because we're in time to say, this is not fair, this is unjust in my life. And what if I die even with this injustice still? 
And this is why it's important to realize that time is under the sun. And that those of us that are in Christ transcend that with him. That we are seated at the right hand of the Father. With Christ, that we are in Christ. That all of these things will be made beautiful in its time. Not our time. And so we hope, we take confidence in knowing that all of the wrongs will be made right. All of these things will be undone. Everything under the sun will have to stand before God above the sun. Most of us think of God as small. I'm almost out of, I'm way over time. I understand that I'm done. My hope this morning is that we would flip how most of us live and seeing that God, we tend to think of God as small and us as big. And I want us to turn that on its head. We need to see the opposite. Because in verse 15, why does God do all of this? What is the purpose of us being limited by time so that we would fear him, that we would revere him? And reverence isn't something that you can force. You can't force someone to respect someone. You can force someone to obey somebody, but you can't force someone to respect somebody. You can't force someone to revere someone. Reverence is this involuntary response And that's my hope this morning, that as we continue to see God for who he is, his bigness, his majesty, his power, his might, but his compassion and his love, that he's weaving all of these things, he's promised to weave all of these things together for our good, for those who love him, that our faith will rise, that our reverence will rise. The most glorious thing that we can do to trust God, to look at and have confidence in him is the cross. God doesn't stay outside of time. He incarnates, he sympathizes, takes on our humanity. He has flesh that is allowed to be torn. He has blood that is allowed to spill so that you and I would be reconciled, that you and I would have a hope beyond the sun. That is, he breaks the power of death. As he breaks the power, that we are set free from these things that, that so chain us together. That there is hope after this life. That there is joy to be found in today, in our eating, in our drinking, in the details of our life. Get filled with joy and purpose as a gift from God. Let's, let's pray and do that even now. Father, as we come to uh, the table to break bread, to drink wine, this glorious reminder um, that our body, it someday will break, it someday will fail, our blood will eventually run out of our veins. And what seems like hopelessness in that moment, what seems like the end of the story, isn't. It isn't, because you've written eternity in our hearts. You've stepped out of eternity into our temporary world. You took on flesh. You took on blood. You allowed uh, the full experience of humanity, even unto death, when you didn't deserve it, to be punished on behalf of us for our sin, so that if we would turn 
from a life just living, um, pursuing um, pleasure or work or whatever it may be apart from you, that if we would turn and live a life in fear of you, in reverence of you, that you would give us this gift of eternal life, that we no longer have to fear death, that our, our life now isn't just fleeting and enigmatic, but that it is filled with purpose. And so maybe today that would be the day of salvation for some here. That for the first time they would realize their life has just really been a chasing after the wind. That it is you they must turn to. Not just to find meaning in this life, but life everlasting. Not an eternal life apart from God, but an eternal life with God. Father, as we come and celebrate um, a communion with you, we would ask that you would just um, fill us full of faith again this morning. Let fear fall away. Let us be thoroughly convinced and delighted uh, that all of this is in your hands. We ask this for our joy and for your glory. Amen.